0: Welcome to the Essential Church Podcast. Our goal is to strengthen and equip church and ministry leaders just like you through practical and theological discussions about some of the most pressing and important issues facing the local church today. We feature conversations with members of our team here at New Life Church in Colorado Springs, Colorado, as well as interviews with authors and thinkers from around the world. You can follow the TheEssential.Church on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Watch episodes on our YouTube channel, and also subscribe to our podcast via iTunes and Spotify, where you'll find a full archive of previous conversations. And now, here is this week's episode of The Essential Church
1: Podcast.
2: Welcome to this episode of The Essential Church Podcast, an ongoing conversation about some of the most important issues facing the local church today. I'm your host, Andrew Arndt, and today I want to take you to an interview that we did recently with Scott McKnight and Laura Beringer on their new book called A Church Called Tove, Forming a Goodness Culture That Resists Abuses of Power and promotes healing. Scott McKnight, many of you know, is the author of Jesus Creed, uh, also a very popular blog by the same name, uh, blogs a lot on early Christianity, the historical Jesus, and things that are happening in the church. And uh, Laura Beringer is a teacher of first and second grade students in the Chicagoland area, and is also Scott's daughter, as you're going to learn in this interview. But they co-wrote this book together as a response to the rash of toxic church cultures that we have seen. Uh, In the last 10 years or so, of course, toxic church church cultures have always been present in the church, but it just feels like it's become more pronounced lately. And so what they do in this book is they diagnose the roots of toxic culture and then talk about what it might look like to develop a culture of goodness. Uh, That word tov is the Hebrew word that means goodness. And so what does it look like to create church cultures that are genuinely good? And so this is the first of two conversations. The first conversation, we talk a lot about what toxic church culture is like and how it develops. And in part two, we talk more about how do we develop goodness cultures. We think you're going to be really helped by this one. And so without further comment from me, here's to the conversation. <music> Well, we're excited to welcome a couple of our friends to the podcast today, Scott McKnight and Laura Beringer. Scott McKnight is professor of New Testament at Northern Seminary in Chicago, and uh, he writes and speaks widely on early Christianity and the historical Jesus, and his, uh, he's the author of a number of books, uh, including the very popular Jesus Creed. Uh, Laura Beringer, on the other hand, is a teacher of first and second grade students in the Chicago area, and she's the co-author of Sharing God's Love. The Jesus Creed for Children. And they have co authored the book that we want to talk about today, A Church Called Tove, Forming a Goodness Culture That Resists Abuses of Power and Promotes Healing, which is really a response to the rash of toxic leadership culture we've seen in the church in a prophetic call to reclaim goodness as a core concept for how we lead in congregational life. So, Scott and Laura, we are glad to have you today.
3: Thank you. Good to Thank be you. with you.
1: Thank you for
2: having us. You're welcome. Before we dive into the book uh, that we're
4: going to talk about today, I just want to tell you, Scott, publicly how much your book, Blue Parakeet, helped me Hmm. at a very formative time in my pastoral ministry when I was trying to empower more women in leadership here at New Life Church. Uh, And I recommend this highly to pastors who are struggling still with gender. And uh, I think it's just a small part of the book, but there was a particular chapter in Blue Parakeet that I found very, very helpful. And I just want to... Give you public praise for for the work you did in that book that helped me as a pastor ten years ago.
3: Well, thank you. This is uh, this book has uh, surprised uh, me and the publisher. I'm glad to say.
2: That's good. (laughs) That's good. That's That's always a good situation, man. Yeah. Well, listen, before we get into the content content of the book, for our listeners who maybe aren't as familiar with the both of you, I think it'd be great just to get some context for the book. So um, for the both of you, would you just tell us a little bit about your experiences in church that led you to write this book?
1: Well, where should we start, Dad? (laughs) (laughs) You
3: start with being a pest.
1: (laughs) Okay. (laughs) 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 Well... So like you said in the introduction, I'm a teacher. This is not a place that I ever thought that I would be sitting. I didn't set out to write a book. In fact, my dad, as he mentioned just now, called me a pest because I kept pestering him to write it. So going back, I mean, it's to 2018, but I can still remember the moment like it was yesterday when the story broke in the Chicago church. Tribune here in the Chicagoland area, a story about Bill Hybels and how he had been sexually, I should say at the time, they were allegations against Bill Hybels for sexually harassing women. Hmm. And the headline caught our attention because it was a church that we had attended for 20 years, and Bill Hybels was my pastor. Hmm. Granted, I I met him one time at a church that size. I don't you don't expect to get to know your pastor. You don't see him behind the curtain, what he's really like. But what was really alarming is when we started to read the article and recognize the name of all of the women, mm. we knew them. Most of them were family friends. Um, many of them, my, some of them my dad had known for decades. And it was a startling realization that these aren't a group of people that would just come together and lie mm. like the church claimed but it launched a series of conversations with my dad who would explain, um, how Willow Creek was not using scripture correctly, that Matthew 18 was not being interpreted the way it should. Um, and I felt like we were learning so much from my dad theologically that it was like, everybody should hear from a theologian about the truth and how, um, the church was handling the allegations and the focus should have been on the wounded, not the institution. And so I became increasingly annoying to my dad and was trying to get him to write about it. And that's really how the whole thing started.
3: When the story broke, uh, Chris, my wife and I were on the back porch reading and I saw it come through on, uh, on an email from Chicago Tribune. And I started to read it, I guess I was two or three paragraphs into it. And I said, Chris, you got to open this letter up, uh, this email up, because it's a story about Willow Creek. And I think it's true. So um, we began to follow this story, we knew the women. I didn't know Vonda Dyer, but I knew Nancy Ortberg, and I knew Nancy Beach. uh, And I thought, these women are not going to tell lies they they are not that sort of people and then um uh, uh, later that night Laura and I talked Oh, Laura talked with us and uh, i mean the big the big theme was i told them that night uh this story is almost certainly true hmm. and everything depends on how willow creek responds so what happened is Laura, as I said, she was a pest. She kept calling and that wasn't the pest part, but she kept wanting me to write about it. And you know, I like pastors. I like churches. I it's, it's, I'm not a reporter. I'm not an investigator. I can't go out there and start interviewing people. So I sort of thought, you know, I'll do what I can. Uh, I'll support the women. And I wrote to the women and I told them I believed them Um but I didn't go public with anything because I just felt like I did not know enough to know uh, what I needed to know to write. But uh, we had talked enough that I uh, was sitting in an airport in a lounge and I, I sat down and I wrote out maybe 1500 words hmm. to try to put together my thoughts on the church. And it was, let's say April, uh, six weeks or so afterwards after the event came out that um, then I went to Turkey and Greece and Italy with some students. When I came back, I called Laura right away. And I asked her what's going on with the Willow story. And she said nothing. And I honestly felt prompted. And at the same time, convinced that Willow wanted to stall because the longer the women had to wait, the harder it would be on them to come forward. So I said, I'm going to do what I can do. And I basically converted that thing that I wrote in the Cincinnati airport into a blog post. And I guess I'm, I'm happy and proud and sad to say mm. that I know it rifled its way from office to office at Willow Creek that week. Mm. And I was glad to get their attention. I'm glad some of them were irritated with me uh, because I wanted to be an irritant to what they were doing. And then I wrote a couple more posts, but it was only later uh, that um, I read a book um, on the German pastors and how they responded to the Holocaust that just utterly uh, shocked me, and it made me be totally convinced of the power of sinfulness, even in Christian leaders, that here are these pastors in Germany— and in the United States, when they're confronted with the truth, don't have the courage to confess their sins, mm. the way they call people weekly in their churches to do. Mm. And it really stunned me. And so that that became a chapter in the book, uh, called we call False Narratives. So uh that, that sort of gave rise to the book as a book. Um this is this is the honest truth. Uh, Laura wanted me to write this book, and I kept saying, Laura, I'm not a church consultant. We write a book like this. People are going to be calling me. They're going to be wanting me to be on podcasts. You know, we did not know about COVID at the time. And I said, you know, I've got <laughs> doing other things. I got a job. And uh, it's been two years of... A fulfilling and satisfying ministry, and an unbelievable unmasking of abuses, mostly power abuses, in churches, that has uh, that has really shifted my interest and focus in uh, even in in what I teach seminary students. Well, unfortunately,
4: so, we've seen this play out uh, exactly what you described. We've seen it play out in other large churches where scandal has erupted. Senior leaders, founding leaders are caught in the spotlight of sin and shame. And and you detailed in your book, and I, I actually I told you the story before we went on air, that I've actually shared this particular chapter with a close friend recently who is struggling with a broken relationship in the church. And I said, buy this book, go to this page, read these two chapters, and call me back. And when you call me back... He detailed, he said, this is exactly what's happening. This is what's going on. And you talk about, uh, you were just talking about how Willow Creek made missteps and they chose institutional, uh, they chose to protect the institution instead of the victims. What do leaders do? And I'm I'm asking you just to take us through these chapters here briefly. uh, But what do leaders do when they're caught? How do they mishandle this? How can you... uh, how can you address and diagnose an unhealthy toxic culture when scandal hits the church?
1: I mean, that's not, that's a complex answer. Um, a complex question with a complex answer, something that really, I can let my dad speak more to the leadership side of it, but something that really bothered me that I could not, would not settle with me, was when the Willow Creek story broke and I was seeing the impact that leaders were having on people that I knew, people in the church, the congregants, they believe the leaders as they Mm. should. Mm. They believe what the leader says, they believe what the elders say. And when the elder says, the women aren't interpreting Matthew 18 correctly is essentially what the message that the elders gave Mm. the Willow Mm. Creek congregation my friends believe that. And so I'm sitting there like, who am I? You know, I'm a teacher and I'm trying to say, it's not right. It's, it's not right. It's not how the Bible should be interpreted because I just couldn't live with um, the wrong message, not of Christ being given to people and then people following it.
3: Uh, the, uh, the, and I, and I would agree with that. The pastors have an enormous power as Laura was saying. Um, and they, Uh, they have the capacity to assume a platform and narrate a story that trusting people are going to believe. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I want want congregants to respond to their pastors that way. I really do. I I, I want them mm -hmm. to trust their narratives. But when the narrative is intentionally distorting in order to protect themselves... Cynicism is going to rise, and um, so, so, um, you know, Brady, you know, all all you, um, I found math the way Matthew 18 was being used really an irritant because it's it's the Bible, that means it's authoritative, Mm -hmm. and that means if you don't follow this process, then you're really disobedient. So, we don't, we can ignore you, diminish you. And dismiss what you have to say, which is not does not logically follow, but it's the way it works.
0: Hmm.
3: And Matthew eighteen basically says, if you have a problem with someone, go to them directly. And they were using that text to say, if a woman thinks that Bill Hybels or whoever um, sexually took advantage of her, yeah. then she has a responsibility to go tell him. Right. And I remember thinking. You have got to be kidding me! Yeah. Well, this this is going to protect the pastor every time. So I basically adopted two policies, uh, two sort of responses. To that number one, always ask who has the advantage mm-hmm, if, if mm-hmm. Matthew 18 is used, mm-hmm. and then think about it: is is really that what we're doing? Is someone mm-hmm. just gaining an advantage? The second thing is, it is never appropriate to require a victim of abuse to confront their abuser privately when that, when that perpetrator or the alleged p- perpetrator has um, an asymmetrical level of power with right. that person. And if you add to this, that that person is not just asymmetrical in power, that person stands there for God. Yeah, You are now asking people to fight God. Yeah. And I, I found it, I found it awful and such spiritual abuse yeah. the way Matthew 18 was being used. And I can't tell you the number of people in the last two years huh. who've told us that very thing, mm-hmm. that I wasn't following Matthew 18, yeah. so they dismissed me.
2: You write in one uh, the way that you talk about both Matthew 18 and 1 Timothy 5.19, which is accusations yeah. should be brought in the presence of two or three witnesses. I love this. I thought this was really insightful. You said, think about it. Sexual harassment and abuse do not typically happen in the presence of witnesses. One would have to say that this text almost never works for sexual allegations against church leaders. In fact, using Matthew 18 and 1 Timothy 5 in such cases is profoundly unbiblical, and it's harmful to victims of sexual harassment and abuse. I thought that was incredibly helpful and insightful.
1: So That's what I was hearing in our phone conversations with our family and I thought everybody needs to hear this. We need to hear it. We need to hear it from a theologian who Mm -hmm. knows the Bible who's spent his life learning and teaching about Jesus and, um, we need to hear what the truth is. How to interpret a passage like that? Mm-hmm.
3: Well, you and, were- and it is. I mean, we do have to use some wisdom. I mean, it's it's the Bible, but it doesn't mean mm-hmm. that it applies in every situation. Right. We need we need some wisdom on this. So, mm-hmm. I'm I'm profoundly grateful for the number of people who've responded affirmatively to my checking, you know, uh, stiff arming the use of Matthew 18 yeah. mm-hmm. and First Timothy yeah. five. In cases of sexual abuse.
0: So we know a lot about narcissism. That's you know, a, a narcissist who's running rampant and the world revolves around them and people are caught in their wake and all that. But there's you guys help us understand the concept of institutional narcissism. Mm-hmm. And institutional narcissism, yeah, you can have good people individually. Elders, trustees, you know, leaders who are... They follow Jesus, they love Jesus, but there's this kind of institutional narcissism that takes over, mm. where we have to protect the shield, we have mm-hmm. to protect the entity. And so how do, how do good people who follow Jesus, who are part of these institutions, how can we break that institutional narcissism in these times?
3: Okay.
1: Our next Uh, book is on
3: that. Do you? uh, Do we use the word institutional narcissism? No, that's that's me
0: just working that. Yeah,
3: okay. Uh, Because I like this. I think I wish I'd have said that. Um, (laughs) The um, here's what I think is a sign of institutional narcissism. Narcissism. When you shift from thinking that your church is helpful and ministers to you. To where you think your church is the best church in the world, mm-hmm. and where you think all other churches are inferior and in many ways unworthy of participating mm-hmm. in. Dang. Let me just say this I grew up in a church like this because we were fundamentalist Baptists, and I grew up being taught that every other church in my hometown. Was filled with people who were going to hell, and mm-hmm. that we were the only true gospel church in the entire community, mm-hmm. other than a very small church plant on the north side of the town that had about fifty people in it.
0: You were the, yeah. the remnant. Yeah, the remnant. We
3: that that's so. Let's just not say it's the megachurch phenomenon. Right. It can be. It can be in small churches. It is that sense that you alone. Are the true people of God. That yeah. is institutional narcissism. Right. And it is it's insidious and it is dangerous because yeah. God's church, the body of Christ, is a whole lot bigger than us. Yeah.
2: <laughs> the one element of the toxic culture that you guys talk about is narcissism. The other element of it and I think that it's not just mega churches. I mean, that's what's nice about your book, is yeah. that you, uh, you're you honest about the context that you come out of, but these abuses of power we've seen in churches of all stripes and all sizes, it's everywhere. And so your book is helpful for us in thinking about that. So if the one side is narcissism, the other side is power through fear. And uh, it's important. I think it's the way that it works with these things, is that they live on the razor's edge of... A difference. like the darkness is always sort of a shadow of what's well, good. It's good for us to have accountability in the church and authority structures that work for us. But that's different than a culture of power through fear. Can you unpack a little bit what a culture of power through fear is and how that develops? You know,
1: you know since we I'll just let me just say one thing. since we wrote this book, we have had, it slowed down a little bit, but we were getting letter after letter. There were some that were sexual abuses, but mm. by and large, most of them were power abuse and mm-hmm. fear cults. Right.
3: Yeah. 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 Oh, we got, we've got way too many of them. I've got them in my inbox. Um, I, I want to say, I think this is, uh, and when, when I wrote this section and worked on it for quite a while, I sent it to Laura. Laura wondered where I got all this stuff. On on the power, she really liked this section, and I I feel like this is an important contribution yeah. to church life. This section on power, um, power is a very interesting phenomenon that is wielded um, wisely and recklessly uh, by the same people in the same churches, hmm. and and we need to be a little bit more conscious of, of power. We've got we're working on this with with some other categories right now. But uh, one of the things that I've noticed in a lot of churches is let's just say the pastor is very successful and charismatic and um, a, a great preacher and bringing people in. And we got we got butts in the seat and we were getting bills in the plate and we're getting baptisms in the pool and we're going to have buildings in the, in the future. So we got the bees going for us. And just It just seems like everything's right, and people begin to develop that the pastor's a bit of a celebrity, that he's very special, that God has his anointing upon this person, he's blessed this person, and they want to be close to him. And there is such a thrill for so many people to be in that inner vibe and know things that other people don't know, that it becomes almost a shield of pride that they can't tell other people what's going on, and and there's other people who are being tested to see if they're good enough to be in that inner circle, and then there's uh, it's a, it's like a sword that has two sides to it. Is that they can cut it open so that they can open it up for you to enter, but they can also cut the other side and right. push people out. So then it becomes you're in the presence of this dynamic reality, and if you don't behave will kick you out. Furthermore, it enhances a person's self-esteem to be a part of it. I've had a number of people say, I cannot tell you how many times I pinched myself because I got to work at this church.
2: Hmm.
3: And that sense, I mean, in one sense, I want to say, I'm great. I'm glad you you yeah. love what you get to do. But there's another sense in which that becomes a power mechanism. It's like a drug. Control. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. That's a good yeah. analogy. Toxic. It's a rush. Yeah. It's a we rush heard, in the...
1: Or the stories of the closer people would get to the inner circle, yeah. the more important they felt Yeah. and the more addictive it was?
2: Well, and especially when that person who's at the center of the circle represents the presence of God and the word of God. Oh, so yes. that that would be true in any social circle where there's a person of influence or charisma or power. But when you add the God element into the mix, that drug-like atmosphere is quite nearly insurmountable, unless you are very deliberate in working against it.